Hi, this is Roy Worley. Welcome to the interview show that brings on guests from all walks of life. Yeah, it's here that they tell their stories and delve a little deeper into their lives to see what got them where they are. So grab a drink, have a seat, and relax, because this is The Leo Effect. When was the last time a short movie shook your emotions to the core? When was the last time a short movie caused you to rethink everything you stood for? When was the last time a short movie made you proud to be an American? When was the last time you felt the emotion to stand up and cheer after a short movie? The new short movie, I've Got Your Six, written and directed by Bill Foster, one of the industry's newest and fastest climbing directors, will answer all of those questions. Rarely has there been so much packed into a short movie that when you leave, you'll feel more proud of our American military veterans. A movie that was cast only with American military veterans will have you on the edge of your seat, cheering for our veterans and what makes America great. I've Got Your Six will be hitting the film festival scene soon. Be prepared to drop what you're doing and go see this powerful movie when it comes to your area. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Leo Effects. Today, I am joined by the man, the myth, the legend. That's right. I am joined <laughs> by the legendary Larry Hankin. How are you today, sir? Um, I'm... I'm uh... Legendarily fine. <laughs> Guess is how to phrase it. I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah, it's a sunny uh, here. I'm in uh, Santa Monica, California. The sun is out, but it's cold. It's kind of chilly. Oh, all right. Didn't know it got cold in Cali. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, neither did I. Uh, that's why I moved here. But I guess uh, global warming has something to do with it. I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're going to jump right into it, and, and I'll ask the first question that I always ask, and that's, uh, cool. you know, I don't expect you to give me a resume because we would be here for a long time, but can you tell the listeners maybe, like, what some of your real big stuff is that you've done? <sighs> okay. Um, In your opinion, see. of course. Okay, well, uh, you know, friends, Mr. Heckles, and... Seinfeld, uh, Tom Pepper, you know, stole the raisins, and Breaking Bad, uh, and El Camino, the movie, and um, sh uh, she's having a baby as a John Hughes movie, and Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, John Hughes movie, Escape from Alcatraz, Clint Eastwood. And uh, just a, a lot of, you know, uh, just a lot of stuff. I don't even, I was talking to somebody the other day and was, he was asking me questions about stuff I didn't even remember I did, you know, like the, <laughs> I thought the first thing I did was Laverne and Shirley, but it turns out it's uh, that girl. I didn't, I didn't even remember that, but, oh. but now I do. What? So yeah, there's a, uh, just a lot of stuff, man. Just a, a lot of stuff but you know i didn't do it all at once i just did it one at a time over several years so to me it's you know i just did the last one that that's all right you know, yeah. that's how i count <laughs> yeah i did the last one and I, I i hope i do another one that that's how i count 
Hey, that's perfect. But, you know, kind of talking about your first one and going back to the, the origin story, if you will, I was reading that you studied <laughs> uh, acting in um, at Syracuse University in New York. Is, is that true? Well, that's kind of a, well, it's, it's kind of it's kind of true and it's kind of not true. Um, what it was is that I majored in industrial design. I graduated. I've got a degree in industrial design. So that's where I was at Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York. But I did minor kind of in theater in that I hung around the theater department a lot. And I was in uh, several productions, but I wasn't. No, I wasn't in the in the theater wing of Syracuse University. I, I just would hang around there and volunteer. And I was kind of funny uh, and good at these plays that they were doing so i got you know good roles I so I, I was known in the theater department but i wasn't in the theater department okay but i loved it i you know i really i i, I as a matter of fact i got kicked out twice uh <laughs> of, of the university the or the, and, the theater department yeah of the university yeah no of the university i was kicked out i was thrown out twice which i kind of now wear as a badge of I don't know, coolness. But I mean, at the time, uh, I was just doing what I thought was right, or, or for me anyway. Right. Uh, and they, well, there was a little argument. Well, I was using, well, in industrial design, you not only have to, in a, in a university situation, you not only have to design your products, industrial design, but you have to build them, or wow. at least mock ups. And so some of them, uh, we had to use a sheet metal uh, and forming uh, equipment. They had a huge, Syracuse had a huge um, production facility, uh, classroom shop with all kinds of woodworking, metalworking, drilling, sawing, whatever, mm -hmm. tools, you know, machines that the people in the industrial design department, I guess in engineering, could use at various hours of the day. So I was, experimenting with the machinery. I was using machinery in new and different and unique ways. <laughs> and that didn't go over too well. So they complained about me. Oh, you spend all your time at the theater department. You know, because I guess they came and saw the productions I was in. The, the head of the Department of Industrial Design uh, thought I was a wise ass. Ah, okay. So he, he threw me out. Uh, so, you know, because I, I defended my, myself. And look, I had to build this thing. And, you know, I, I designed it in such a way that a lot of the machines couldn't do it in their particular way. So I had to invent ways. I mean, my my desire was on the up and up. I was not selling the machinery or making um you know, bobbleheads. I was just <laughs> using them to make, you know, what I was assigned to make, but I had to do it my own way, you know? Right. So, yeah, it was, it was interesting. So that, that's, yeah, I was, I was in it, but I wasn't in the theater department. Gotcha. But I did hang there, around there a lot. Well, what was it that made you decide to go from industrial to acting? Yeah. Yeah. What did? Well, uh, to tell the truth, I never wanted to be anything or do anything. Um, I, I was, uh, although I, I come from a very 
lower middle class family, um, I always thought I was special. N- not in special like in the world. I mean, like special like in my in my relatives. Oh, my relatives, because okay. because I was the only child for aunt, for my aunts and uncles and grandmothers and grandfathers for about five years. I was the only you know uh, the uh, the only progeny that uh, you know. So they all doted on me for, ah. for, the, for the first five years. I was, at a, you know, bring me places and bring me gifts and all that stuff. Uh, and then that, I guess, now this is a coincidence, but uh, I, it all came to a, a, a stop. And, and then that was, was A, when my sister was born. Oh, there's another child. And then all the attention went to the new baby. Mm-hmm. And I was like left out in the cold, which kind of made me kind of angry. Uh, and the the other thing w- was that um, my birthday, the day of my birth, is December 7th. And that kind of ruined my young life uh, because of the, the, the December 7th. Uh, you know, people were celebrating the war instead of my birthday. And I uh, didn't like that. Oh, uh, okay. I, I thought it was an insult. Yeah. So, I mean, it was all going down the tubes, you know. I, mean, I had a birthday, and there was a, had been a war, and, uh, you know, people weren't paying attention. Yeah, so I, I, I think I got a chip on my shoulder because of the first five years. And then afterward, it just, you know, just went down the tubes, you know. So I just got to... <laughs> I had an attitude from then on. That's from the fair. age of five on, I had an attitude. And I guess, <laughs> you know, the, me being thrown out of college was one of the accumulations of, of that attitude, I guess. You know? I see. All right. That's fair. And that's what made you decide to become an actor? Oh, oh well, 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 that, uh, well, and I, I see why I answered that because of the way that you couched the question. Yeah, because I didn't want to go to college. Uh-huh. So, so my whole thing, even though I was an A student, I, I was, see, here's the thing. I'm a, I'm a good, I was a good boy. You know, I, I listened to my parents, even though they told me stuff that was weird. Well, they're my parents. I mean, they wanted me to go to college. They wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. They wanted me to take care of them, make a lot of money when I get, when they get old. I mean, I knew that. I, I knew that, you know, from the time I was 16 on. I was being geared for something other than what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. So by the time I got to college, I didn't want to go to college. I even told them, no, I'm not going to go to college. What do you want to do? And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So by forfeiture, I was forced and all right, I'm going to be a good son. I'll go to college. Industrial design, because I liked art. So I went, but my whole idea. So when I graduated, my best friend in college weirdly i had no idea about this we didn't know my best friend was carl gottlieb who later was going to write all the jaw movies right yeah (laughs) i didn't (laughs) know that but wow so he was my best buddy and we just you know i I hung around we we my i was in a uh what do you call it fraternity and they didn't like him because he wrote at the time, I mean, he was always a writer. He just loved to write. He wanted to write for movies. I mean, that was his dream, to, I think, right out of the box, so to speak. And so he um, was writing for the school newspaper, and he hated 
the marching band, Syracuse marching band, of which Jim Brown was on the football team at the time. So the marching band would, you know, march during halftime. So anybody who didn't like the marching band, by association, didn't like Syracuse University's football team or Jim Brown in particular. I don't know how they made that leap, but that was the association. And he didn't like the band and wrote about it in the paper. Oh, (laughs) And he would hang around with my fraternity. Yeah, so you'd hang around with me, and we had seats up in the the tiers, the the, the top of the stadium, you know, but on the 50-yard line. Well, down below, straight ahead on the uh, in the first couple of rows was the marching band right next to the field, you know, first, I think, five rows or however. Yeah. But they were right down below us, and one day, somebody said to the band members down below that, Hey, you know, Carl Gottlieb, the guy who writes all these things in the newspapers about you, they even hung Carl from a lamppost and set him on fire in effigy. They made a dummy of Carl Gottlieb in the middle of the quad and hung him from a light post and set it on fire. That's how much they hated him because he just he, he was calling them all kinds of names and stupid and blind. And they didn't make good music. I mean, so they really had it in for him. So they hung this effigy. Okay, and then the Saturday or Sunday for the game, somebody said, Carl Gottlieb is up there in uh, Tor Delta Phi. That was my fraternity. Uh, He's up there somewhere. So the band turned around and started yelling straight up, pass down Carl Gottlieb. And it was passed up all the way through. Everybody turned around. And when it got to my fraternity, I was sitting with Carl, and they go, Oh, is Carl here? Larry, Carl is with you. They want him down there. So they thought it was a joke, a big joke. My mm-hmm. fraternity brothers. Hey, let's pass Carl down. And they start to grab him and, you know, like pass him overhand. Oh, my god! All gosh. the way down to the band. And they were going to trash him, man. They, they really had it in for him. <laughs> they would have hit him with French horns. I mean, <laughs> really bad. Oh, wow. So, so, so they turned my own fraternity brothers turned on me and Carl. And the the bond that we had was me and him had to fight off my fraternities. And that bonded us. Now, I just thought it was the right thing to do. You know, I mean, he's my friend. I invited him into my, you know, group on the 50-yard line, but way the hell in seventh heaven. But I thought, okay, you know, he's my friend. I got to, you know, okay, I'll fight my, my, uh, my fraternity brothers. So then when they saw that both of us really were serious and they just wanted to pass him down, they didn't want to beat him up. They just wanted to, you know, join in the fun instead of passing the the big ball around to pass Carl around. (laughs) And that was funny to them. But but we knew if if Carl ever got down there, they would beat the crap out of him. We knew that was serious. They had put out a vendetta on him. So we we were serious. We were going to fight him off. So. They backed down. They actually did. They, they said, oh, wow. You know, I mean, we just stood up, you know, formed a phalanx of two. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, and, you know, we were up on the, on the last tier. So they had us backed against the wall. There was a wall. And then if you climbed over the wall, you fell like, you know, 500 feet to the, to the floor below. We were way high. Yeah. And we could look over the wall and look down. That that's where we were. So we had no place to run to or run up or back to. So they backed down, but that 
so when Carl, when I graduated, both graduated at the same time, he was, he was in the, I don't know, English department or whatever writing was about. Right. Well, he said, well, let's go to Greenwich Village. I want to write for the New York papers there. We'll get an apartment. So I, me and him got an apartment together, but I didn't want to be an industrial designer. I was an A student. I just didn't want to do it. That was all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was flown to, uh, 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 I think it was Chevy uh, GM, General Motors. Yeah, I was flown to General Motors. I was going to design uh, uh, future cars for them. Oh, but, cool. But, you know, I didn't like their designs. I mean, I didn't know Carl was going to ask me to be his roommate in New York. This was in the last year, my senior year. I was flown there to Detroit. And I just turned the job down. I mean, I had an attitude problem. That was it. You know, they would show me some designs of future cars and I would poo poo them. I said, well, they're not <laughs> okay. that great. You know, and he said, uh, you know, I was being, I, I thought I was being honest. I, I guess there was a little anger hidden in there, but I, I was just saying, well, you know, uh, what do you think of this car? You know, it was, it was a little model, you know, made of plaster of Paris and mm-hmm. made shiny. It was white. It looked like a cake of soap that had been designed as a car. Right. That's what it looked like. Okay, <laughs> about twelve inches big, and I and I said, "Well, I don't. Yeah, it's you know, it's too. I don't know. I don't. I don't like it." And he said, "Well, the the head of the department designed that." And I said, "Well, I don't care if he's the head of the department. He's a bad designer. I don't. I, just, I don't like it." So that right set off our guide. There was about five of us being guided through, giving us the the grand tour. So the next place they took us was to. Um, the executive dining room, which was really cool. It was like a great, I don't know, great New York upscale hotel restaurant. It was beautiful. So I said, wow, man. You know, I was impressed. I said, wow, we're going to eat lunch here? That's great. You know, he said, no, no, no. This is the executive uh, restaurant. You, you, you don't eat here or you won't eat here. So I, I said, well, why are you showing it to me then? If <laughs> yeah, I can't right? eat here, what's the good? I mean, why didn't you show me where I eat? Why didn't you do that? And I got real like, like, see, I'm getting an attitude right now, just talking to you. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so that, that kind of, you know, so they kind of sent me home and I knew, no, I'm not cut out for it. So me and Carl moved to Greenwich Village and he wrote uh, reviews of movies during the day. Real, really local newspapers, not anything big, you know, uh, not even the Village Voice, but just you know, pockets, <laughs> pockets of resistance in newspapers, <laughs> little ones. Okay, yeah. uh, and I had the whole day off. I mean, he was paying the rent. I, I was just, uh, I, I got a job uh, uh, in a bar um, uh, sweeping up after, after uh, 2 p.m., after last call. I, I would swab the, the duck boards behind the, the bar and sweep the floor clean up the glasses and stuff. So I was doing that like for my, I would show up at work at one thirty, and I would work until I think my building is on fire. I think, Uh-oh. Hold it, wait a minute, let that pass. Yeah. Wow. I didn't shut the window. Maybe, let me just shut the window. No, they passed. So I'm not on fire, but let me shut <laughs> oh, that's the window good. anyway. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, we, we just moved in and I had nothing to do. So I would hang around the, uh, we lived in Greenwich Village, and it was the '60s. So I um, started hanging out at the uh, coffee houses where they had open Monday nights, open mic nights. They were free, 
you just pass the hat. So I'd be listening to these comedians and I was thinking, yeah, you know, I was a funny guy in high school. I went funniest in high school my senior year. So that was kind of cool. And I was in a lot of plays in, in high school. And then in college, I, I would hang around the theater department. I would get these funny roles. So I thought, oh, you know, I could do that. So I started getting up on Monday nights and, and doing a Monday night open mic night, you know, three or four minutes. And though I was funny in high school and college and in theaters, um, it, there's a big, I didn't realize this until I got up on stage on Monday nights. There's a difference between being funny and getting up and getting laughs. That's ah. two different worlds. I mean, I can be talking to you, you know, maybe during this conversation, I made you laugh, you know, so you might say, hey, well, Larry's funny. Mm -hmm. But if you said, OK, we're going to be on TV tonight, you got three minutes, go out there and be funny, Larry, you were funny on the phone. No, that's like a whole different thing. You know, you got to write that you got to hone it. You know, people don't just go on, you know, a late night show. Uh, they, they've honed their act for about two years before. Right. You know, they tried it off. So I wasn't funny in the beginning. I was God awful. And I, <laughs> to this day, I've heard recordings of me in the beginning. I'm not funny, man. I'm, I'm just, I'm trying, you know, right, trying to right. be funny is not funny. It's awful. It's grinding tense for the audience. So, um, but to this day, I don't know what kept me going back, except I do remember this one phrase when I got off stage and they didn't boo, but they didn't clap, uh, you know, maybe just a, a couple of, you know, finger snappings, you know? Yeah. 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 You know, that kind of thing, <laughs> but <laughs> that's rude. But, um, uh, but I started getting better. There was a learning. I, I, I always said I can do it better. That, that was when I came off the stage and I knew I wasn't good at all. I mean, because I was used to, making people laugh, you know, in a living room or, you know, or talking on the phone or whatever. Right. But to get on a stage and to get up, so I knew it was bad. So I would say, yeah, I think I can do it better next time. That was my whole creed. I, I don't know where, I mean, to, to, now I don't do that. You know, if I'm, I said, okay, later for this, I take a pass. No, I would just get up the next week. And there was a, a lot of coffee houses. There was the Cafe of Go-Go and the Bitter End and, uh, just uh, a whole bunch of the the, uh, the night owl and blah blah blah. Wow! So I start to get good, and within six months, I was opening for Woody Allen. So there's a pretty good learning curve, I thought. Yeah, you know, holy wow. cow! Uh, in nightclub, yeah. I mean, th that was. Uh, I didn't think it was a. I thought it was n normal, but I was talking to other people, and they said, "No, no, that's pretty good." I mean, it generally takes you a year or two before you're opening for headliners, you know. And then I was opening for you know. Miles Davis and the Kingston Trio, the Blues Project, the Eleven Spoonful. Uh, I mean, just a lot of Ian and Ian and Sylvia, uh, just a, a, a lot of headliners. And that was kind of cool. Uh, so that was I, I'm into show business. Boom. There I was. But then see, again, the attitude I, I and my point of view of the world was really not my parents point of view. They were. They were very right, right wing. Um, had just, just, just out of. I mean, they were uh, bigots. They were uh, this very discriminatory and uh, very closed minds. I, I, I weird. I come from a very weird family. My father was very weird. Uh, 
very strict, very Martinet. I mean, he, you know, hit, hit me and my sister with belts and straps and stuff. Wow. Oh, but what is it called? Something kind of punishment? Not military, but punishment. Something punishment. You know, when you... Corporal punishment. Yeah, he would beat us. <laughs> he wow. would beat us. Yeah, he would. Um, yeah, he knew. He, I mean, I could tell you how, you know, we just, I'll tell you one horror story, but I'll tell you one weird story. He, he, he hit my sister until my mother had to pull him away and she was only five. Wow. I mean, he just lost it. You know, I was only like 10. Uh, yeah, I come from a very weird family. So, uh, it took me a long time to get those tapes out of my head. I'm, I'm still working on it, but yeah, I used to be very bad, but, but anyway, so the, 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 uh, alternate side of that and the good side was I, I got a very, um, alternate view of politics, religion, drugs, sex, rock and roll. Uh, so I was really good at satire, uh, just because of the, that anger, right, uh, which right. was channeled in a really cool way. What? I was just saying, right. Yeah, I I could see that. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, but it turns out, now, I didn't know this, but when I finally started getting good, good enough for a manager to come in, Woody Allen's manager, and said, hey, you got a manager? No. How would you like one? Yeah. How about me? Sure, let's come come up and talk. I didn't know who he was, but it was Jack Rollins, probably the biggest manager in show business at the time. He managed, you know, Woody Allen, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sylvie, uh, that was his big hit. Sylvie, um, I don't know, but he had a lot of stars. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so I didn't know that, but I got, but I started to pick up fans in Greenwich village, a very, um, alternate, lifestyle people who turned out to be hippies um uh like uh, like peter paul and mary and dylan and uh i can't even remember their names now they start to fade but the, all the folk singers that that was what was big in in the, the prior was there yeah richard prior would come see me and uh uh, Dang. <laughs> who, or, you know, but all the alternate people. And so I didn't know that I was being hip and satirical. I just was being funny as I honed my act, but it was very pointed. And I didn't know that until I went to my uh, manager, Jack Rollins, because now Woody was starting to, you know, do television appearances late night, Jack Parr, Ed Sullivan, you know, big time, uh, hotels, uh, and stuff. So I went to Jack and I said, Hey, you're my manager. You're Woody's manager. Why don't you book me in these big places and get me on television? Cause I was still playing the village coffee houses uh, and I was opening for him, but, but that was all, I right. mean, I wouldn't do it in any television. So he said, Larry, you don't have any television material. And I go, I don't even know what that is, man. You know, what, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, you curse on stage and say, you know, the F word and you say, you're talking about drugs and sex and rock and roll and religion. And I mean, you can't, you know, it was the sixties. I mean, Lenny Bruce was being arrested for saying those things. And the only reason I wasn't being arrested yet, but I finally was 
was that I was too obscure. I was in coffee houses and only opening for Woody. So I wasn't being advertised and hardly any people reviewed me. They would review Woody. And so either they would say the opening comedian was uh, not very funny or he was kind of out there or he's kind of risque. You know, one sentence. And then they go on to Woody. So nobody was bothering me until I was opening for big acts. And then when I opened for um, Love and Spoonful, the cops showed up. And then that was that was that was it. I was pulled off stage by the police. They were throwing things. The student, the students, man, during the 60s, I was, you know, I was talking about religion and they started throwing their armrests. You know, those wooden armrests you see in movie theater in the old time arenas and movie theaters. There's yeah. wooden armrests on these metal chairs. Well, they come off. You know, you can knock them off if you hit them from the back. I used to do that all the time in high school. You <laughs> just hit them from the back and they go forward. But we used to just play with them and then put them back on, you know, when you, you know, whatever. So, but these kids were knocking uh, off the first two rows were pulling them off and throwing them at me. Oh, my God! And the Love and Spoonful were, oh, yeah, it was really weird, man. Because I was talking about naked people and, you know, God and, you know, oh, what's that between your legs? and blah, blah, blah. So uh, the Love and Spoonful were laughing like hell in the wings and saying, no, keep going, keep going. And they were saying, no, do the clean stuff. Tell us about your family, blah, blah, blah. So um, I, I, finally I just stopped and I said, hey, you know, look, um, this is funny. I'm not, this is, don't worry about it. I'm not, I'm not against anything. I just, uh, so they wouldn't stop. So I said, okay, I'll do my clean material. So I did my clean material. And when about 10 minutes, they came right back, you know, they was laughing and da, 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 da. So when I thought I had them back and they were with me, I said, okay, so now let's talk about sex, God, and, you know, yeah. and rock and roll. And they started booing again. And now the guys in the back, no girls threw anything. All the guys in the back started pulling off their armrests and passing them down. To oh the my first god! Second row, because <laughs> <laughs> so they, they didn't have any armrests left. <laughs> They're passing them down and throwing them up. So then I, I said, "No, no, no!" And I'm ducking. If one of those hit me, man, they're worse than a bottle hitting you. They were heavy. Yeah, I bet. So, I, I, as I'm ducking on the stage and saying, hey, stop it, stop it, because I don't want to get off the stage yet. I, I thought I could still get to them if I talked to them. But no, and they were throwing and booing. And then I see cops, a phalanx of cops, about 10 cops on, on the wall side of this aisle and the, on the aisle on that wall side, uh, 10 cops. And they came up on both sides onto the stage and they escorted me off. They, you know, took me by both arms. I went with them. I mean, there was no struggle or anything. I just said, Oh, what do you guys want? No, we want you off the stage. And all right. fine. So they <laughs> took me off because the crowd was going crazy. And the love and spoonful thought that was really funny, but I, I called my, uh, and then I was a guy in a nightclub one night. I was opening for the Kingston trio and he came at me with a beer bottle upside down in his fist threatening me to get the fuck off the stage you know we want to hear the kingston trio and in here we didn't come in here to hear that crap wow I mean, you know lenny bruce type of reaction man so and you know and i wasn't doing drugs at the time i that was coming <laughs> in about two more years before so i i was totally innocent i'm not lenny i'm not lenny but or, or richie or you know or george you know carlin you know so because we saw each other's acts we thought each other was funny but mm -hmm. they kept it up and i so i called jack and i said look i can't do this anymore man i mean i'm getting 
pulled off the stage. I'm not Lenny. I don't do drugs. I, I don't know what the hell's going on, man. Uh, so I'm, I don't know what to do, man, but I, I, this is not, this is not fun, man. So he said, join second city. They do the exact same thing that Lenny and you do and prior and George, but they own the theater and you got five other people on the stage. So they'll throw the guy with the beer bottle out, you know, don't worry about it. So I did, I auditioned and I got in. And so I was in second city in Chicago and then a couple of us said, let's go to San Francisco and open our own improv theater, which we did. And we called it the committee and we were a big success mm-hmm. compared to Second City. We were called rivals. And that's what got me to the West Coast. And the combination of being in the committee in a hit show on the West Coast in San Francisco, an hour and a half flight from L.A. and a round trip ticket flight. In those days, is thirty five bucks. <laughs> so nice. all these big time producers, what? That's <laughs> <So> nice. <laughs> what? Oh, well, that yeah. See that that's what got the big spenders and the big stars and producers and directors in L.A. They heard and they read the reviews. You're getting rave reviews and being compared to Second City, but it's now on the West Coast. So that all of them would fly up to see what the hell was going on. And it was just 35 bucks round trip. You know, they see a show, you know, have dinner, maybe, uh, you know, stay overnight in a hotel, spend the day in San Francisco and fly back. It was like a little, you know, weekend, yeah. you know, come up Saturday, fly back Sunday. But they all, so all the hit shows, all the directors saw us. So we were being cherry picked. I mean, it was better than an audition. They saw us in a hit show being funny in front of packed houses. So they would, you know, uh, call us on our you know, private phones. We didn't have any agents up there. We were just in San Francisco, you know. Uh, so and we were famous in San Francisco. So we would get jobs without an agent. They would call us to do radio spots or commercials, whatever. And then we, you know, get called and go down and instead of auditioning, they already saw us in the show. So we would do a lot of sitcoms and that's what I, so finally I got an agent by then and then everybody started moving down because they were getting more work and getting paid higher mm-hmm. than just, you know, being in a, a, an improv show in San Francisco. So everybody finally moved down and me too. And there, there we were. I, kite, I, I couch surfed for a while, got an agent uh, I, Jack wasn't my agent uh, or manager anymore because he was doing stand up and I was on the West Coast and I was in uh, seconds uh, in uh, the committee for about 10 years. Oh, uh, I, I, so I was. Yeah, I was. Oh, that was that was the best. I wanted to be there forever. I'd still go back to there and just be in that forever if that was the opportunity presented. Oh, improv was great, man. You didn't do it. It was like being a stand up comedian, but you were. Uh, employed regularly, you know, six days a week in a hit show. You still were doing the same kind of stuff that you were doing that I was doing, you know, satirical, you know, really cogent stuff, intelligent, you know, comedy uh, off the top of our heads, but in scenes that we improvised instead of, I, I never in all my life ever wrote down a bit. Like when I was a stand-up comedian, I was a stand-up comedian for two years from opening Monday night, open mics to opening for, 
you know, the Kingston Trio and, uh, you know, all those big acts, Miles Davis. I never once wrote anything down. I never wrote anything. I still, to this day, can't write wow. a hunk for a stand-up. Now, I just would get up on the stage and I would tell my day, just like I'm talking to you, but with a, with a, with a comic bend. There's a certain, I don't know, attitude you just... When you want to be, when I wanted to be funny, like even in a living room, I'll be listening for a while, and then my mind will just start start to see, um, what do you call it? Uh, comparisons. I said, oh, well, he said oh, yeah, that yeah. a couple of seconds ago, and now we're saying this loopholes, kind of loopholes in people's logic. That's what I pick up on loopholes in the lo- loopholes in the zeitgeist of either the nation or the city or the conversation. I can see where the logic is falling down and the guy doesn't even know it, you know? Yeah. And I'll call it. I'll just, I'll just say it. It's funny. So that's, and I can't get that on paper. I, I, I don't know how to, I, I it's just, I have to be, I just have to be paying attention to what's going on. I can remember it, which is what I do. I'd see something weird in, during the daytime and I'd just get up on the stage at night and I talk about it, knowing it's it's weird enough that it's going to be funny. I don't, know. you know what it's like now that I think about it. It's like a log line. You know what a log line is? You know, in, in writing a screenplay. No, I it's, don't. It's the log line. Oh well, it happens all the time when you go in to sell a screenplay. Because I write, I'm writing a screenplay. When you pitch a screenplay, there's two things you have to do, know. You have to know the story. So let's say, you know, what's your screenplay about? That's your story. You have to know your story. But you also have to know the log line. And the log line is, tell me in one sentence what, what, your, what your story is about and make me want to read the screenplay. That's what a log line is. Like, um, I have a log line for one of the screenplays that I wrote. And, and this was a really, this was told to me was a very good log line. Now, it was an old guy. The story was about an old guy who was a parking enforcement officer riding around on a trike, on a three-wheel tricycle, you know, those that in New York, the cops have it. They usually have a boot in the back, mm-hmm. those three-wheeled motorcycles. Okay, so he's, a, he's about 65, been doing it for 40 years, and he gets downsized and... and, and and, and forced into early retirement because he's too old and they got young people coming up who work a lot cheaper than uh, him. So he's fired or oh, forced into retirement and he's insulted and he's got an attitude. He's about 65. He doesn't like it. So he, you know, he's, his logic, he's kind of addled about it, goes a little nuts. Not, not much, but you know, it just, it gets his, his reality's mixed up. He steals a motorcycle and he goes on the road. He's going to, he's now become an, uh, an outlaw because okay. he was fired and he wore a uniform. He now has got the, I think he's going to be a hell's angel. <laughs> okay. he, you know, he's going to fight the system. He's going to fight the system that kicked him out. That that's his attitude. So he's going to He steals a motorcycle, uh, hell's angels, motorcycle, a funky one. And he, he starts heading to, to to Fargo for the big motorcycle rally, you know, the Harley rally. Right, yeah. So that's, that's the story, is his trip trying to be a hell's angel, trying to act like a hell's angel. 
Okay. As he's going towards, so the movie is a is a is a road movie of a guy on the of an old guy, adult old guy on a motorcycle. Okay. So here's the log line: Don Quixote on a motorcycle today. Boom. Now you kind of get it. You know, <laughs> yeah. Don Quixote on a motorcycle. Yeah, that's kind of cool. In today, we updated it. Basically, what that says we update. I've updated Don Quixote, and instead of an old horse, Resonante. We'll put him on an old funky motorcycle and he's going to change the world, right? right. He's going to be righteous. <laughs> he's going to be a hell's angel and, you know, and screw the cops and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So that's a law, a, a log line. And so that's kind of what a pitch is and what I get in my mind when I think I got something I can talk about on the stage. It's like, you know, like me saying, Oh man, um, I just saw an old guy on a motorcycle ride by. Uh, Don Quixote on a motorcycle. I can talk about that. I can talk about that guy. And I would get up on stage, and it would be funny. That's all I needed. I don't. I can't explain it. I don't know why or how that happens. I just know that's what happens. You know, <laughs> I get this idea, and I get up on stage. So I never wrote anything. So I didn't have anything ever even and then when you go into the committee and you improvise you don't write anything you know you get suggestions from the audience and if the improv works well you do it again there's a certain section of the show where you repeat scenes to work on you don't write them down you just do them again and then the director will say yeah but this time um don't be so angry when you're talking to her or uh, focus on the cigarette lighting the cigarette that's Get into that, you know, work on that for a while, you know, just trip out on lighting her cigarette. So you would get suggestions like that, but nothing written. So I would love to do that forever, you know, but, yeah. you know, hey, the, the pay is great, you know, down here. So, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, that's that's kind of how I finally got into show business <laughs> to answer that question <laughs> a long way around. Hey, I liked it. That's a good answer. But uh, we we're actually quite a bit over the show time, actually. But I mean, you covered. Oh, okay, well, there you go. You covered so much. Like that was such a phenomenal story. I want to say thank you so much for sharing that. Like you kind of. Oh, cool! Touched I on was all just, kinds of stuff. I, I was just. Oh well, I was just talking to you, man. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. <laughs> That's it was what I awesome. Did. I get up on the stage, and you know, more laughs in there. But but thank you. It's great. I like doing podcasts. I mean, that's where I'm at. You know. Yeah, well, I'm gonna have from to, my head out. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get you back on to, for a longer one, maybe a, cool, a special man. edition or something. <laughs> but thank you again for coming uh, on. Uh, cool. Well, thanks a lot, Ray. Man, it's really, really a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, and thanks to all the listeners who are tuning in and checking out the Larry Hankin interview. I hope you oh, enjoyed oh, it as can, much as me. Do you have one? Can I do one, one, more, one commercial? Do you have time for me to just do one commercial? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm opening up a, a new website. It's called TheRealLarryHankin.com. You can go up and see it. It's in beta now. We're building it, but it's up. It's called TheRealLarryHankin.com because Larry Hankin is owned by somebody else, and they want me to pay them a lot of money, and I won't. So it's TheRealLarryHankin.com, and I got a book on there. I'll have T-shirts going to be sold eventually and paintings and, and a lot of things about me and show business. And So go check it out. Yeah, perfect. That's, that's the commercial. I'll put the and I'll I put the link called, for oh, it in the in the podcast description too. Oh, okay. And the, my book is called The Loopholes Dossier. It's a satire. Awesome. It's just funny stories. Loopholes Dossier. Yeah, we're gonna have to get you back to talk about all this. That's just 
that's what we're going to have okay, to do. Okay, cool. Thank you, Ray. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll right, see you talk later. To you later, man. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Bye. And thank you, listeners. We will see you all next time. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, creatures of all ages, what an amazing show. Thank you for lending an ear and joining us. I'm the host, Ray Rumsey, and if you want to hear more interviews, simply head to anywhere podcasts are heard, Facebook or Twitter, and search The Leo Effects, with an A, not an E. If you'd like to hear me doing silly voices and making a general fool of myself, head over to Shattered Dungeons on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. We live stream every Tuesday night. More projects are in the works. For now, stay tuned for more interviews. To book yourself as a guest, you can head to theleoeffects.wixsite.com slash podcast or send me an email at theleoeffects at gmail.com. Remember, this has been The Leo Effects, and great shows require great listeners just like you. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.